We're going to be shifting gears in the next few weeks, but I wanted to just touch on marriage kind of as an introduction. One of the great things about being married, or it should be one of the great things about being married, is the ability to get to know another person in a very intimate way, and hopefully, according to God's plan, for the rest of our life. Now, some of us may look at that and go, well, blessing or curse? Well, it's a blessing. We need to know, as we grow older, you know, you hear people say when they get to be older like me, God, love my spouse more than I did umpteen years ago. Amen. Amen. Go ahead, honey. Yeah. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> I didn't want to seem like I was deceiving the people. But it's because we get to know them so much better. We get to appreciate them so much more. And if we're paying attention like God wants us to be paying attention, we learn how to love them better. We learn how to honor them better. We learn how to lead them into the giftings and talents better. We become more of the two becoming one that took place when we said the I do's, but it kind of grows and matures as we get a little bit older. As a matter of fact, have you ever heard as we get older, married couples begin to look at each other? I was going to put mine and Cindy's face up there, but Cindy's been praying against that happening for 30 years. But it does seem to happen. You ever sit in a restaurant, you look at an older couple over there, and go, look at that, they look like brother and sister. They look the same. They look, how does that happen? I think it's another miracle. In some cases, maybe not such a miracle. We begin to look like each other. And it's an interesting thing when you look at the Bible, how the Bible tells us that we as believers are the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. He is the bridegroom. Once we become born-again believers, we are married not only in this life, but in the life of in eternity to God. He sees us as his bride. And if that's the case, if we just look at it in the natural and apply it a little bit as best we can to the eternal if, if we are to, to know our spouses better, more intimately, that we can learn how to be more passionately in love with them, to honor them, to train them, to, to work together as a couple, doesn't it make more sense that we need to get to know God more intimately? To get to know Him in every way that we can know Him. To know more about who He is, about what He has done to know his characteristics, to know his attributes. And as we begin to know him better, it naturally will transform us. I don't know if it's like two older people beginning to look alike or not, but it does say that we will be transformed more and more into the image of God, into the image of Christ. That's part of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, to getting to know him better. We should know more about his very being, his very essence. We should begin to know more about what he likes. What brings him pleasure? And, of course, more about what brings him displeasure. So we're in the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some of the characteristics of God. The characteristics or the attributes, the qualities of God that constitute who he is as best we can and as best we can understand them. Some of them may be attributes that you've thought about before. Some of them may be attributes that you really haven't considered too much before. This morning I'm going to start in John chapter 4, verse 23. 
And I'm going to warn you up front, if you're one of those people who likes to take notes, you're no way going to keep up with all the scriptures that I'm going to give you. So just write down where they're found at best. You'll never get the whole scripture. I won't give you time. But in John chapter 4, verse 24, I'm going to read it, starting actually in verse 23. It says this. And the context of this is Jesus is having a conversation with that Samaritan woman at the well. Do you remember it? The woman who had five marriages and she's living with the sixth one, that one. And it finally got to the point where he was talking about him being living water. And if you drink of the living water, you'll never thirst again. And her thinking was, geez, if that would be good, that would be great. I wouldn't have to walk all the way out here to this well all the time. And all of a sudden, their conversation turned to worship. To worship. And she says, our people worship in this mountain. But we know your people worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus' answer is what I'm reading in verse 23 and 24. He says, A time is coming, and now it has already come, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Verse 24, God is spirit. God is spirit. And his worshipers, therefore, must worship in spirit and in truth. Today, that's the first characteristic or attribute of God I want to just talk about a little bit is he is spirit. Now, that might seem like, gee, Mike, we kind of knew that. How does that impact us? How does that impact us in particular in the area of worship? And that's where we'll kind of try to apply this a little bit later on. You know, we've been singing. Some of us were raising our hands. Some of us were clapping. And hopefully some of us were truly worshiping. But you know you can do all those things and not be worshiping? We'd be clapping. We could be raising our hands. We could be dancing before the Lord, singing at the top of our lungs. And it's a scary thought to realize that it may not even be worship in God's eyes. And we can figure that out from this verse where it says, God is spirit. He is a spirit. And therefore, those who are worshipers of his, those that he seeks to be worshipers, must worship him in spirit and in truth. He is a spirit. So the very essence of his makeup is immaterial. In Luke chapter 24, verse 39, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He says, look at my hands and feet. This is after the crucifixion, after the resurrection. His disciples are talking and they're kind of questioning and doubting a little bit. And Jesus just kind of shows up and he says, hey, look at this. Look at my hands and look at my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. God is spirit. He is immaterial. He is a spirit. He doesn't have a physical makeup. Yes, Jesus does, but I think most of us realize Jesus was not always man in eternity past. We know that Jesus came to earth. It tells us he humbled himself in Philippians 2. It says he humbled himself and he took on the form of a man in order to save us from our sins. But up till that point, until Jesus became man, until Mary became pregnant with Jesus, he was spirit. 
he became man. All man and all God. A story for another day. True. Hard for us to comprehend, but nonetheless, true. But God the Father is spirit. Now, sometimes when you give a sermon, you'd really want to hope you're teaching people something they've never heard before. I'm really hoping everything I'm teaching you today is something you've heard before. But it may not be. So if you have, put up with it. And if you haven't, really contemplate some of these things. If he's spirit, and he doesn't have flesh and bone, flesh and blood, how come the scriptures refer to him as having flesh and bone and flesh and blood in so many places? What's wrong with that? How can that happen? When we notice in scriptures, I'm going to read one from Exodus, and boy, you could find many, many different ones, but Exodus 33, verse 22, it says this. And Jesus here is talking to Moses. Remember the scene? He and Moses are having this talk, and Moses wants to see him. Reveal yourself to me. And he says here, when my glory passes by, he says, I'm going to hide you in the rock. I'm going to put you in the cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand. Thought he was spirit. Then they have flesh and bone, flesh and blood. I'm going to cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. But my face must not be seen. Hand and back and face. But he is spirit. He doesn't have material makeup. How do we make this work in the scriptures? Well, there's a term that I'm not going to try to pronounce many times, but it's called anthropomorphism. How many of you like that word? What does that mean? And we do this in lots of different ways, and sometimes we need to understand some literary things about the Bible. The Bible, if I stand here and tell you that God is a spirit, he is not flesh and blood, he doesn't have a body, somebody could say, what in the world is he talking about? I can show you all kinds of places. I just showed you where he talked about his back and his face and his hand, and we could go on and on. The reality is there's a literary device called this big word, anthropomorphism. And what that means is simply when you give human characteristics to God, in this case, or to an animal, or to an object. You know, we could be standing outside, for example, in, a, in front of this great, big, majestic tree. And the wind is blowing through the branches of the tree. And we could look at that, again, if you're more poetic than I really am, you could look at that and you could say something like, wow, look at the arms of the conductor conducting the orchestra as the wind blows through. You go, what? The tree doesn't have arms. It's got branches. It's not conducting anything. It's just the wind blowing it. But it gives you a different picture. It helps us to understand something. Can you imagine if someone said, I want you to describe God to me. And no one, according to the Word of God, has ever seen Him. No one. How do we begin to describe it? How do we begin to describe Him? Well, we would have an unbelievably difficult time doing that, but God in his great wisdom, knowing he created us, used this technique to help us to understand, better understand, and send a message to us about himself when he says these types of things. 
That big word comes from two Greek words, anthropos, which means simply man, and morphe, which means form, in the form of a man. And he's talked about in Scripture like this often, just to give us this frame of reference so we can relate to something that we've never seen, no man has ever seen, except one, Jesus. But no other man has ever seen him. In Psalm 60, verse 5, it simply says this, Save us with your right hand. He doesn't have hands. What's that mean? And then it goes on in John chapter 10. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. What is he trying to convey to us? He's trying to help us understand something. He doesn't have a hand. How does he, how does he tell us that he's going to keep us? He's going to protect us. He's going to hold on to us, that we are secure in him. Easily, no one can pluck you out of a Father's hand. He's got you. He will hold you. He will keep you secure. You don't need to worry and live in fear because he's in, you are in the Father's hands. The earth is his footstool. Uh, Does he have feet? How big are his legs? It doesn't have anything to do with his feet or his legs. It has to do with how big our God is. The universe itself cannot contain him. So it uses these kinds of terms and these kinds of words throughout Scripture to help us understand. They're illustrations that we can relate to. You know, also another way of using this amorphism thing is he gives animal characteristics to God. Now that seems pretty weird, doesn't it? But it paints pictures for us. For example, Psalms 91. He will cover you with his feathers. And under his wings, you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart. God doesn't have feathers. He doesn't have wings. What is the message? He's helping us to understand. He is protecting us. We get that picture maybe in our minds of this mother hen pulling in her little chicks and putting them under her wings in this place of safety, this safe place of protection. So when we read this in Scripture, it doesn't need to confuse us at all. It's actually there to help us to understand better and more about who he really is. Because he is spirit. And no man other than Jesus has ever seen him. If you're spirit, you're invisible. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. We can't see God because he's spirit, because he's invisible. But we can see things about God all around us. The Word of God tells all his creation is revealing who God is. But he's done more than that. He's given us Jesus who is the representation of God the Father. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What does that mean? Does the Father look like Jesus? Same height, same build, same beard, if you had one? No, it doesn't mean that. But the very nature of who he is has been revealed to us through Christ. 
So when we see him being seen in Scripture, how many of you know, have read stories in the Bible where they've seen God? Well, if you've read the Bible, you've seen that. What is that all about? It's called a theophany. It's called a theophany. What's a theophany? It's a temporary manifestation. A temporary physical manifestation of God where he reveals himself to men in a way that they can understand. And we see theophanies throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New. Isaiah 6, verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. He saw God. He saw the robe he was wearing. It was a theophany. God is spirit. And in his very nature, you can't see him, but he at times revealed himself. He revealed himself in a fire. He revealed himself in the cloud. And he revealed himself as man. Angels of the Lord, oftentimes, was God manifesting himself. But the most complete and full manifestation of who he is is still Jesus. Jesus... I hope we get this. It was not a theophany. Jesus, as I read the scripture, he was flesh and bone, flesh and blood. He was not a theophany. He was the real deal. He is not or was not a temporary manifestation of who God is. The God-man Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in a throne. He really is going to be physically like he was here on earth in that regenerated body, but he will still be the God-man Jesus for eternity's sake. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, the that word representation in different translations, it's different words are used, but it actually is referring to his very nature, his very character. He sustains all things by his powerful word. John 14, 9 says, Jesus answered to Philip. He says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And how can you say, show us the Father? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. The Father is spirit. The Father is invisible. What is Jesus revealing to us? The very nature and character of God. If you've seen Jesus, you know what there needs to be known about the Father. Jesus is the ultimate expression of God and who he is. So, God's a spirit. God's invisible. At times in the Bible, he chose to physically manifest in what we call a theophany for a short time. We know that he's been de described with human characteristics. So what does that mean to us, right? That's all nice. What's it mean to us? What do we do with that? Well, I want to go back to the scripture I read to begin with in John chapter 4. It has everything to do with our worship. It has everything to do with what we were doing when we were singing the songs. It has everything to do with what we're doing when we're listening or reading the Word of God. It has everything to do when you're doing your job five days a week. It has everything to do with what you do when you're meeting with people 
It has everything to do, or it should have, with everything we do as human beings. That's why it's important to understand. Look at John 4, 23, verses 23 and 24 again. The time is coming and has now come when true worshipers, I hope we all want to be true worshipers, will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship Him in the Spirit and in truth. What does it mean to worship in Spirit? Some translations capitalize the word Spirit, indicating the Holy Spirit. Other translations just use a little s in reference to our Spirit. To me, it really doesn't matter because really the impact is the same. Because the Holy Spirit in us is what quickened our spirit when we were born again so that we could become worshipers of God in our spirit. But what does it mean to worship in spirit? To worship Him in the wholeness of your heart. With who you are. In spirit and in truth. John 4.24 that I read there is in context of a conversation that he was having with that Samaritan woman at the well. And he says, the only way you can worship is in spirit and in truth. doesn't matter where. I hope you're not confused and think you have to come to church on Sunday morning so you can worship. The devil would love that if that's all you did during the week. Jesus is saying, spirit or worship is a matter of your heart. Worshiping in your spirit. John Piper <clears throat> said this. True worship comes only from spirits made alive and sensitive by the quickening of the spirit of God. True worship. An unbeliever. Let's just imagine for a moment that in some of these Christian concerts where there's 12,000 people, that they're all believers. When they start singing and worshiping, if they were all believers, there could be true worship taking place. Could be true worship taking place. But in a place like that, we are pretty sure that not all of them are really Christians. And if you looked at the crowd, they may be standing and jumping and yelling and raising their hands and singing and dancing and doing all these things. And what are they doing? They're just having a good time doesn't mean they're worshiping. But the very person very right next to them could be doing everything exactly the same, and they are a worshiper that God is seeking because it's coming from their heart. They're worshiping in spirit. It's God's spirit in us that ignites and energizes our spirit. Have you ever experienced when it might be in music, it might be in a time of prayer or meditating on the God's Word. It could be any, any time. But for me, so often in our time of music, it's like I, I just feel like I want to explode. Something inside me wants to explode. Most of the time, my flesh gets in the way and I can control it. Because a lot of times what I want to do is I just want to dance and jump before the Lord. And I would confirm in your minds that I'm crazy if I did that. But sometimes, it's just like I can't, you know, and, and it's, I'm confessing sin now, okay? So you got that, right? I'm resisting the Holy Spirit. It's doing something. You know, I, I, I'm not one of those people that loves music in general. I mean, I love to worship. 
People ask me, what's the name of your favorite song? I don't know. What are the words? I can't remember. But when it's played, I know which one it is. So it's not like the music's all, it's, it's something that gets stirred. And the Spirit of God in you energizes and ignites your spirit, and you just can't hardly contain yourself. It's at those moments I, I can really relate to David when he's dancing in his underwear, marching through the streets. And what was he so excited about? The presence of God. And the God that David was worshiping that way lives in us. Wow, that should excite us to want to worship. Because the God that lives in us, God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, one of his goals and objectives is to glorify Jesus and bring great joy to the Father. So if it's sticking in, it's kicking in and out, man, it just should, ugh, from our heart. And that's the kind of worshiper the Father seeks. A convicting verse is in Matthew 15, 8. And we can blow it off by saying, well, Jesus is talking to those doggone Pharisees again. Because he was. But he says this, these people, these people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. He's listening to these Pharisees tell him about the way they are interpreting one of the commandments about honoring your father and your mother. And they twist it and distort it and, you know, and say, well, hey, everything's given to you from God. Don't be giving your parents honor for what should really go to God. And Jesus is looking at them and says, you guys, your worship is meaningless to me. It's in vain. It doesn't touch my heart at all because it's not coming from your heart. He says, you've already received your reward among men. Why would they do it? Why did they worship? Why did they pray? And it tells you in Scripture, the Pharisees, they did it to be seen by men. They did it to be seen by men. And Jesus said, well, for what it's worth, that's your reward. But there's not one ounce of that that's eternal. Sorry. It doesn't touch the Father's heart. They worshiped in vain. God is spirit, and he must be worshiped in spirit. So a good question would be, what about our worship? What about my worship? What about your worship? Is it in vain? Or is it the kind of worship that God seeks? Does it come from our inner man, from our heart, from our will, from our emotions? Does it come from that part of us that has been ignited and energized by the Holy Spirit of God because we're born-again Christians and He lives within us? Which is it? So now I'm going to give you some practical ideas of how we can practically worship in the Spirit to honor God. To worship in the Spirit with the right heart means these things. Number one, and again, you can make such a long list if you want. Number one, everything we do can be worship. Matter of fact, everything we do should be worship. Everything we do. It's not just about singing or raising your hands or clapping or dancing before him. That's all well and good if it's coming from our heart. But everything we do, when we're talking with people, when we're doing our job, when we're, we're just interacting, wherever we go, whatever we do, because of, of it being a heart issue, it's universal. We can be worshiping anywhere at all times. 
matter of fact, we're supposed to be. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And anytime we are doing anything for the glory of God, we are worshiping Him. We complicate this thing, or we get this religious mindset of what worship is supposed to look like. Worship can look like you getting up in the morning, taking care of your physical body, because He tells us to be a good steward of our physical body. Greeting your spouse in a loving way is worship. Greeting your children, if you have them in the home, is worship. Driving in such a way to work that it's honoring God is worship. The work that you do, sitting at your desk or swinging a hammer, can be worship. Everything we do can be worship if we're doing it unto Him. That's a strange concept to a religious mind. But it's biblical. Because it's a heart issue. Worship in the Spirit with the right heart means, number two, to give God our very best. You maybe have heard me say that before or even pray it. I pray it for me oftentimes. Lord, Holy Spirit, right now help me to, to can take every thought captive. I don't want the clutter and the competing thoughts of this morning or this afternoon or yesterday or work or this thing or that thing to be competing right now with me worshiping you. And boy, that's hard to do sometimes. Let's take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Give them our very best. We can look through the Old Testament and when they were, their primary form of worship or one of their primary forms of worship was going to the temples, right? And worshiping. And what, God, what did God always say about their sacrifice? Bring me your very best. Bring a lamb without spot, without blemish. blemish. And if you didn't, God rejected the sacrifice. We don't bring animals, kill them, shed their blood. Jesus was the final sacrifice for our sin. But the Scripture says, bring a sacrifice of praise and of worship. Worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. Number three, worship needs to be a priority in our life. A divided heart quenches our worship, quenches our prayer time. Psalms 86, 11, the psalmist writes, David writes, Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness to give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Half in, half out. Priority. Prioritizing our worship. What are the things that are competing for our heart? And it can be so many different things. God says, I want to be top priority. I want to be number one in your life. And it's impossible to worship him in everything that you do if he is not top priority. Number four, being zealous in your pursuit of God. I am so guilty of falling so short of this one so often. God, I could really use you right now. Here's what I need. Please answer this prayer. Okay, I got to go now. See you later. 
where's the zealousness in that? When do we get zealous about, God, I need your presence, and I'm going to show you right now. I'm not going to let go. I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to quit. I'm, not, I'm going to be persistent and zealous in seeking you and seeking your presence and pursuing you. In Jeremiah 29.13, he says this, You will seek me and you will find me. When? When you seek me with all your heart. You know, sometimes I'm convicted when I think of that verse and I think, oh, God, I've been praying about this for months. Where are you? And I, thankfully, I can't say I've heard his voice say, Oh, yeah? When did you do that? You know, that two minutes I have between my house and the church building? Really? While you were listening to the radio and Fox News? Well, yeah, I can multitask. I'm so guilty. And I'm guessing I'm not the only one of being or lacking in zealousness. Psalms 42, verses 1 and 2. As soon as I read it, you'll know what verses they are. As the deer pants, right? As the deer pants. The deer panting is what? A picture for us of someone who needs water, thirsty. As the deer pants for streams of water. So my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? The psalmist say, I am just dying of thirst here for you, God. I need you. God, when can I go to you? When can I go to you? Zealous in pursuing God. Number five, worshiping with holiness. Now we need to understand a couple things. One, we are holy and righteous in Christ. But we also need to understand we still sin. And I believe that sin will interfere with our worship, with our prayer life, because prayer is worship. David wrote in Psalm 66, verse 18, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would never have listened. And that word cherished is a critical part of that verse. Because you might jump to the conclusion, gee, there's always sin I'm not even aware of. Does that mean God's never listening? No, that's not what that means. When I cherish something, I know it's there. And I want it, and I like it, and I'm going to keep it. If God is convicting me of sin, I say, no, Lord, but i got a long list of things I need to ask you for. Probably it's not the best way to work. David's saying, you know, when I cherished, if I cherish that sin in my heart, he's not going to listen to me. The good news is the Holy Spirit in us will reveal those things to us, convicts us of those things. We can confess it and go on because that sin has already been dealt with. But we don't want to cherish sin in our heart. True worship in spirit. And sixth, the last one I'm going to list is live at peace with our brothers and sisters. Live at peace. A couple of verses you can look at. Verse 25, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 23 of Matthew. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, 
leave your gifts there in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. In Romans 12, verse 18, it says, If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. If there's, the thing here is unity versus strife and division. You know, if, if we know God is revealing these things to us, if we know there is something amiss, we need to go make it right. You know, love your brothers as yourself. Love them. There's so often we, we've got somebody in the church that we sit in that corner because they sit in this corner and don't look and see who's sitting there because I just use that as an example. But I'm not going to sit over there because I'm teed off at them. And until they come groveling to my feet, that's the way it's going to be. All right, let's stand and worship. God says, no, 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 go make that right. Go make it right. Be in unity. There is power in unity when we worship. That's why it's so powerful when people gather together. You know, it's one of the things I so enjoy about our worship and healing nights. You know, golly, we've got to go to church again. That's twice in one day. Are you kidding me? We've got people driving 100 miles one way. They are carving out time in their schedule. They are spending money. They are making a commitment. They are coming with anticipation and expectation. We come together with a bunch of people like that, and we're all in unity. It just doesn't take long for our worship leader to go, oh, this is fun. I don't have to pull a train this morning or tonight. It's just fun because we're all in unity. Live at peace with our brothers. The God we worship is spirit, one of his attributes, one of his characteristics. And that's the kind of worshiper that God wants, one who worships in spirit and in truth. That's why it's important to us to understand that that's really who he is. That's really what he is. He's seeking those kinds of worshipers. In the next weeks, we're going to look at some other attributes or characteristics of God. But one of the most important things when we do that is to always say, what does that mean to me? It should be just like when you're reading the Bible, when you read a verse or two verses or whatever you read. Stop and then take time and say, what does that mean to me? How do I apply that to my life? And here's a critical one that we've talked about this morning. God is seeking worshipers. Now, <clears throat> I, I hope that we understand that he's not this needy God who needs our worship. You know, it's kind of like this. He is very pleased when we worship him. But God doesn't need our worship. So is he displeased when we don't worship him? I don't know for sure, but if he is, I think it's because he knows how good it is for us. And boy, it just refreshes us as we worship him. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you so much that we can worship you anywhere, anytime, no matter what's going on. God, that our time in your word is worship. Spending time just praying and talking to you is worship. All that we do is worship when it comes out of a heart desiring to bring glory and honor to you. Lord, I pray you would help us 
Take control of our natural mind, our thoughts. Take those thoughts captive. Give us the grace to do that. And remind us by your Spirit that you desire our worship. Undivided worship. Lord, I pray that our worship always brings great pleasure to you as a father. That we will be more conscious and more aware of what we do, what we think, every day, all day long. And wonder and ask, is what I'm doing bringing glory to God? Am I worshiping Him now? So Lord, I pray you would help each of us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that lives and dwells in us and the grace that you give us to be able to do that. Father, because we can't do it on our own. Our natural mind is so hard to control. But that's what you want. And that means it's possible. So I pray you would help us by your Spirit, by your grace. I pray now as we go our different directions, God, that you would go before us, that you would keep us safe, watch over us. God, I pray you would give us opportunities to share the good news of Jesus with others we come in contact with. God, and I pray that we are just vessels overflowing with the love of Jesus so that other people will be drawn to you because of that love that we can exude and demonstrate and show for them that we can truly be like Jesus. Let us be a people who are moved by compassion. Father, let us not allow our schedules to control our lives. Father, we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.